0: Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 47 beginning with verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine and Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food and with our land we and we with our land will be servants to pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate so joseph bought all the land of egypt for pharaoh for all the egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them the land became pharaoh's as for the people he made servants of them from one end of egypt to the other Only the land of the priests he did not buy for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you and you shall sow the land and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And he said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. This is God's word.
1: We've been following the lives of Abraham and Sarah. There are children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. God first proclaimed and entrusted his plan for saving all of the human race to one man and his family. And we're following that family through four generations. And we're now in, in the middle of the story of Joseph. This passage is a widely overlooked chapter. In the Joseph story. Have you noticed that? Uh, Maybe because it's so awkward. Uh, If you look at verses 20 and 21. It actually says. Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields. Because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people. Joseph made servants of them. From one end of Egypt. To the other. If you're my age or older and you grew up in a church-like culture, you may remember Sunday school class with flannel graph. Have you ever heard of flannel graph? You millennials have never seen flannel graph. It's when you put a piece of paper that's cut out to look like a character like Joseph or a burning bush or something like that, and you slap it to a flannel board, and it just sticks there, levitating in space. And that's how Sunday school teachers used to tell Bible stories. Everything. You name the biblical person, the historical figure, I've got a flannel graph image of that person and what they went through. I don't remember any flannel graph stories of Joseph making servants of all the Egyptians. It's kind of something that you skip over when you tell kids the story of Joseph. Look, the Egyptian approach and thereby Joseph's Administrative and economic policies within Egypt's economy and government are not ideal to us when we read them as 21st century Americans living in a democracy. But given the context in which Joseph worked, in which he governed, which was an absolute monarchy, which was a polytheistic society who virtually virtually believed, basically believed that the Pharaoh was a god. Given that this was in the midst of a seven-year regional famine, Joseph managed to preserve his family, the family of the promise, his clan, and he managed to preserve life for an entire society. This is not a message about government. And it's not a message about economics. Uh, there There are prescriptive passages in the Bible and descriptive passages in the Bible. Prescriptive passages tell us what to do. Descriptive passages tell us what happened. And fortunately, this is a descriptive passage. It just tells us what happened Uh, We don't have to apply ancient Egyptian policy and Joseph's procedures to our lives today as Christians or even as Americans. We don't have to do that, thankfully. But I do want to talk to you today about doing good work in whatever circumstance you're in. Doing good work regardless of your situation. You see, from a biblical perspective, the grace of God infuses your work with purpose and with joy. That is the Christian understanding of work. That the grace of God infuses our work with purpose and joy. And I want to discuss Joseph's work and our work. And interestingly enough, God's work. Joseph's work, our work, and God's work. Joseph did great work in circumstances that were not ideal. Times were very difficult. Those times required very difficult measures, but measures that in the end stabilized and preserved an entire society. The form of servitude that Joseph enacted. Now, remember, it's ironic because Joseph was a slave and now here he is legally making servants of the entire egyptian population where he once had been a slave and a prisoner but the form of servitude that joseph enacts is very unlike the chattel slavery from our own recent past as a society after all the resources after all the resources of egypt's population were exhausted during a seven-year famine, they come to him and they ask, and you see it in verse 9, 19. The people ask Joseph, buy us and our land for food. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, if you wanted to survive on your own, you did whatever you had to do. You worked, you sold your possessions. Uh, you even would sell yourself to somebody who was willing to hire you so that you had a place to live and food to eat. This was not an uncommon thing. Nonetheless, the people say to Joseph, buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So the people come and ask Joseph to enact this thing. And Joseph, in a sense, according to one scholar, basically makes them tenant farmers on state land. This is very similar to the medieval feudalistic system of Europe, which worked for a little while. Actually, it's interesting because although Joseph declares them servants of Pharaoh, and look, according to Egyptian theology and their own belief system, everything and everybody was owned by Pharaoh anyway. So in a sense, what was theory becomes fact in the midst of this famine, this was nothing new to the Egyptian people, but they're actually saying, Pharaoh, we want to be yours so that we can stay alive. But it's interesting, Joseph lets them live on their own land and farm their own land, and he only levies a 20% tax, a one fifth tax on all that they grow. He lets them keep 80%, four fifths of their produce. Scholars say that uh, the going rate. For taxation in the ancient Middle East, right? So the surrounding countries in that society was at least 33%. So by ancient standards, Joseph, uh, as a leader, is doing pretty well. By modern standards today, 20% tax, that's it? That's even good for most economies and societies and nations where we live right now. Surely, Joseph's past trials made him not only an effective leader, but a merciful one. And so the Egyptians responded to this foreigner, this outsider, who is governing them by saying, in verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Sometimes, sometimes, just often enough, God grants a society, virtuous leaders who do good work. Sometimes. Just often enough. Joseph's faithful work as an outsider. Remember, he's not from Egypt. His faithful work as an outsider in trying times really becomes the biblical model for a work ethic. Many centuries later, Daniel, the Israelite, would become an effective, virtuous leader as a political refugee in Babylon. And then in the New Testament, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Peter, were were encouraged to look at themselves as, and I quote Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, elect exiles, chosen exiles, refugees in this world that did not belong to them, but chosen and loved by their Creator. And so the New Testament Christians were encouraged to consider themselves elect exiles with a righteous calling. In a fallen world for the Christian, the pattern for your life and for your work is to be modeled after Joseph or Daniel or Esther, not after the rank and file citizens of political ancient Israel. We have a hard time realizing that distinction. We want to compare ourselves politically and socially to David and Solomon The norm, according to the New Testament, is to see yourself like Daniel, to see yourself like Esther, to see yourself like Joseph, strangers, travelers who do your best work because you're called by God in a place that is not your own. That's the biblical model for the Christian's work ethic. And Joseph did his best work as a foreigner in the worst of circumstances. So let's expand this idea beyond Joseph's work to your work, to my work. Look, some of your best work might just rise out of very difficult circumstances. Have you noticed this? I find, uh, I don't mean just about if you notice it's about me, but about yourself. Uh, I find that I can be the least productive and effective when I'm frustrated. when, When I am discontent about the situation that I am in. You know, when the policies at work constrict you, when your boss and, and your peers or your supervisors, they undervalue the work that you do, when you're criticized for your faith or your worldview, where you work or where you minister or where you serve. And we think, you know, if, if conditions were only better, I think sometimes we think if conditions were only perfect, but if conditions were only better, then I could do really good work if conditions, if circumstances were only better, then I really could become productive. But, but look, look, conditions are, are rarely ideal. I mean, what do you do once you realize that conditions are rarely ideal? In any scenario, what do you do? How, how do you find purpose in what you do? Wherever you are doing it. How do you find purpose? How do you keep doing it? How do you do a good job at it? When you know that situations, circumstances will never be ideal and often are working against you. Well, the Bible very helpfully distinguishes between work and toil. We're going to talk about the difference between work and toil. From, a, from the Bible's perspective. Work. You may, uh, from, from where the Bible's coming from, this is, this is a simple definition for work, as God designed work. Work is when you and I exercise righteous dominion to cultivate and develop the world that God has created. God worked to create all that we discover and know exists. God worked. And then he created man and woman in his image, and he told them, you go and work now. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And theologians call that the cultural mandate. That God created the world by working. And so working is a holy thing. And he made us in his image to work, to represent him by subduing. And don't think of that in a negative, with a negative connotation, subduing, multiplying, be fruitful and multiply. God said to the man and the woman and subdue the earth and have dominion over everything else. The point of that was to exercise righteous cultivation and development of all that God had made and said was good. So farming. Farming. Anything, for anything that you do, farming, education, medicine, parenting, the arts, writing, politics, being a car mechanic, it's all work. And according to God, it's all good. Tim Keller, of course, in his extremely helpful book called Every Good Endeavor, which, by the way, he got the title for that um, by quoting something that, The jazz musician John Coltrane said. How cool is that? Uh, Anyway, Tim Keller writes, We were built for work and the dignity it gives us as human beings, regardless of its status or its pay. Every Christian should be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction the ways in which his or her work participates with God in his creativity and cultivation. Imagine going into a hospital. And seeing a custodian mopping the floor. And going up to that custodian and asking him or her, what is it that you do here? And imagine that custodian saying something other than I mop the floor here. Imagine that custodian saying, we heal people. Even something as simple as mopping a floor can contribute to the greater good. I want to talk to you a little bit about toil, though. Toil is the futile striving of fallen sinners to make limited progress in a decaying world. Because the man and the woman that God created to do good work for him in the creation that he had made chose to reject him. They were under new management. This serpent guy. And as a result of that, As a result of their decision to reject their creator, everything changed. Even the way work takes place under the fall changed. And so God came to them in the garden and and God said to the woman, listen to this. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. God said to the man, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. God said to the man, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In a decaying world, you know this is true. In a decaying world, you can't achieve what you set out to do. Not ultimately. You can check off boxes and get degrees And graduate from the third grade and make certain types, reach certain types of goals and achievements in your life, but what you truly envision to be possible, you can't achieve. You ever meet some of the most successful people in the world or the most dissatisfied? But so are you. I mean, when you look at that definition of, of toil, the futile striving of fallen sinners to make limited progress in a decaying world, If you are a stay at home parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you work with people, if you work in nonprofit organizations, if if most of what you do is the formation of individuals, their character, their personality, their effect, their, their productivity, you know that you and they will never achieve what is ideal. It's ultimately frustrating. And so the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter two says, so now this was a very successful, brilliant man who says, after all of it, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. So work invigorates you and inspires you. It's what you were designed to do. It is In essence, what human what it means to be human work invigorates and inspires you toil exhausts you and frustrates you work makes you want to get out of bed toil makes you want to stay in bed. But the Bible says that God is redeeming work all of it all of it. As we said the other day, as we said last week in Revelation chapter 21, the one who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And you become a part of that restoration process. If you have the kind of faith that Joseph had. And so once again, Tim Keller wrote that work will be both frustrating and fulfilling and sometimes just Often enough, human work gives us a glimpse of the beauty and genius that might have been the routine characteristic of all our work. And what, by the grace of God, it will be again in the new heavens and in the new earth. And I think the witness of Joseph, how he worked, how he was faithful as a stranger in very difficult circumstances is just One of those sometimes just often enough glimpses of the beauty and genius that once was and will be again. So in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, you and I can give God our utmost devotion in the work that we do, whatever it is, wherever we're doing it. We can give God our utmost devotion in whatever setting he has called us to. Joseph didn't wait Until he led a country to work hard. He worked just as hard as a slave. He worked just as hard as a prisoner. And so the Apostle Paul would say to the Philippians. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The circumstances where you work and where you live and where you serve are never perfect. And they will rarely be ideal. But you know, society needs people who are willing to make the most of any circumstance. Society needs people who work as to the Lord. Not as though they're just working for people or working for themselves. People who will make the most out of any situation, who work as to the Lord, who put other people's interests above their own. That's what society really needs. That's what Egypt needed, and the Lord delivered somebody for them. That's what our society needs, and the Lord has put you in it. That's what your family needs. And the Lord has put you there in your home. That is what your friends and your neighbors need. And the Lord has put you on your street in your community. That's what your business or the institution where you make a paycheck needs. And that is where God has brought you. You know, rather than waste our lives and our careers and our relationships waiting for better circumstances. Pouting about our current situation and how it doesn't match up with our ideal what if we assumed that our positions and our circumstances were not accidents? Remember, remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they met up again. Hey, hold on. God sent, God sent me here ahead of you. God brought me here to save lives. What if we began thinking that where we are and what we're dealing with, regardless of the circumstances, is not an accident? Are you ready? whether it's in your home or at your workplace or where you go to school, are you ready to shine as a light in the darkness? Are you ready for that? You can. Who are you working for? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Who are you working for? Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you're slothful and you just refuse To do what you're equipped and skilled to do. Or what by experience you know how to do. Or what you are spiritually gifted to do. Maybe you're lazy and slothful. And you just don't want to do it. The ancient Greeks and actually aristocratic people. And some of the knowledge culture. Even up until our day. Think that manual labor is just not for real human beings. Who have amounted to something. It's not what God said. It's not what God did. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you work very very hard. Maybe you work so hard. That you would consider yourself. An workaholic. Maybe for you. Worship is really what you. Work is really what you worship. Maybe for you. Your work is a way of redeeming yourself. Maybe your work is a way of justifying. Yourself. And you have another problem. But do you realize this? Whether you're really lazy and you're not doing what you can be doing. Or whether you have worked so hard that you are trying to save yourself by how you work and what you've accomplished. Regardless, look, do you realize that every ounce of raw ability that you have, especially your giftedness. But, but, but even your, your, your physical faculties and your intellectual and mental capabilities, do you realize that all of it comes from your creator? If you don't trust God and you don't follow your creator, do you realize that still everything you do to survive and live and make money and make friends, everything has been given to you by someone else? And so worshiping our work or ignoring to do the work that we have been called or equipped to do essentially is to deny our God-given humanity. Which is the greatest insult we could make to our creator to, to not be what he has designed us to be. We speak of having and choosing a career. We don't talk much about vocation. Which comes from the Latin word to call. We talk a lot about the careers we choose. We don't talk much about what God calls us to do. But calling. See career is what you and I decide. But calling. Calling speaks of God's purpose for us. And here's the thing. To restore purpose to the work that you're doing. To restore joy To the work that you're doing. You ultimately need to see that God has been working for you all along. That's the interesting thing. God actually works for you. Jesus said to a bunch of his critics. Who were heckling him for healing a man on the Sabbath day. uh, He said to them. "Hmm, My father is working until now. And I am working. God rested on the seventh day, but Jesus said, my father and I are always at work. Isn't that interesting? The son of God lived out his calling to perfection without complaining in the most hostile and oppositional circumstances imaginable. You think you've got it difficult. Jesus perfectly lived out, worked through his calling in the worst of circumstances. Tim Keller said, when you read the beginning of Genesis, you see that God is a gardener who works with his hands. And when you read the Gospels in the New Testament, you discover that God came to earth as a human being. And what did he become? A carpenter. Still working with his hands. No form of work was ever beneath God. And it doesn't have to be beneath us either. But Jesus' greatest work was enduring the toil of the cross. The toil that you and I deserve because of our sin and rebellion and our laziness and our pride trying to justify our existence by what we do and how much we do it and how effectively we do it. We deserve endless eternal toil. For what we've done to God. For what we've done to his creation. For what we've done to one another. But Jesus took all of the toil that we deserved. And he dragged it to the cross with him. Your best work cannot redeem you. But Jesus' work does. His best work is exactly what redeems you. And... Jesus said to his disciples by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me by disciples as the father has loved me. So I have loved you abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see that joy and purpose is connected to love. Isn't it true that you'll do anything for the people you love? And isn't it true that your love is what gives purpose and joy to what you do? It's love. So why don't you embrace and rejoice that love sent Jesus to the cross to work for you? And the book of Hebrews tells us that he did it for joy. He looked at the cross despite the horrific nature of what he was going to have to endure. But he had joy considering how he would work for you. To release you from your endless toil. Grace, grace, and that is what grace is. Grace delivers you from toil. Grace infuses your work with purpose. Whether you're a homemaker or a CEO. Whether you're unemployed or whether you are climbing the ladder of success. Grace and grace alone. The grace of God infuses your work with purpose. God-given purpose and with joy. So give God your utmost. Give it to him. Give him everything you've got. Give him your utmost devotion in your work. Give him your utmost devotion in the setting to which, at least right now, he has called you. It was in servitude and prison and then through a famine that Joseph shone like a star in, his, in the dark culture in which he was in. And, and are you ready to shine like a star? Are we ready to shine like stars in the darkness? That is what redeemed work looks like. So by God's grace, let's get to it. Because Jesus got to it for us. Let's pray. Father, we seek and hope for and pray for the return of Jesus who will make all things new. Jesus who worked for us, who always is working to perfect and sanctify us. Uh, We ask, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly, but uh, quickly for you doesn't mean quickly for us. We know that. So while we wait, would you enable us to do good work as Joseph waited in servitude, as he waited in prison? He was not inactive. Would you teach us the joy and the purpose of working for you, regardless of the situation? Father, may all our work be praise as the hymn once said. In the name of our Savior Jesus, amen.